Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest is from MIT. He's an associate professor. His name is Ashigun Henry. So, uh, Professor Henry, or uh, Ashigun, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're going to talk about your research. So, um, if you would, can you just state it in your own terms? What's your research about? Um, so my research is really centers on heat transfer and energy. Um, my research group and the topics that we work on um, are a bit self-segregated into two separate areas. Um, on the one side, we do um, like fundamental science work, work on the fundamental physics of heat transfer. Uh, we study heat transfer at the atomic level by looking at how atoms move, how atoms vibrate, and um, we develop you know theoretical um, models, approaches, frameworks for understanding heat transfer um, and the physics of heat transfer in that context. Um, the other half of my work is um, more large scale, relevant for, you know, essentially we're, we're interested in any technology that can move the needle on climate change. Um, but our expertise is specifically in heat transfer and we have a tendency to really work specifically on technologies that involve heat transfer at high temperatures. That's really where our core expertise is. So we've um, we build and test prototypes and technologies that are have some ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there are two main technologies that we're working on right now. Uh, the first is an energy storage technology that involves um, storing heat as opposed to electricity directly um, in order to achieve uh, extremely low costs. And um, the second is a technology that um, is used for, would be used for hydrogen production. Um, and, and current hydrogen production actually puts out a bunch of CO2. And so this would be an approach to making CO2-free hydrogen. This is great. There's a lot to talk about. I'm always thinking about heat and cold, I think, because I'm always hot and sweating. So, <laughs> so it's very important for me to stay cool. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to ask you first on the, on the, the underlying physics side. If I have a, um, you know, I don't know, a, a pot of water, and I heat it. How is that actually happening? If you, if you can go into like the basic physics of it, like what's, what's literally happening when you want to heat something up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this is this, this question, I think, and the way you're asking it is a big part of what led me into this field is because I had the same question and I didn't, it, it took a while for us before I felt like I could get a straight answer on what it, what it is. Because <laughs> um, I used to ask, well, what is temperature and why does temperature have its own units? Um, but basically what is happening um, every object, including yourself, um, and every object around you, including the air, everything is all consists of atoms, and those atoms are constantly in motion. Um, they're constantly moving around. And so what temperature is, is it is a measure of the average kinetic energy of the atom. Kinetic energy is one-half mass times velocity squared, so it's essentially a measure of the speed of the atoms and how quickly they're moving. Um, when you have something like a solid, the atoms are generally fixed to a particular location. An individual atom moves around a specific site or location. 
um, but it'll move back and forth and vibrate around that site, but it doesn't go away from that. Um, and so what happens is then you can think of those vibrations as, as consisting of a variety of different frequencies. So there's lots of frequency components and content to those vibrations. What happens is that the frequency spectrum or the speak frequency content of a particular material is not so much uh, temperature dependent. It doesn't really change much with temperature, but what does change with temperature is the amplitude of the vibration. So the vibrations get larger, they move further away from that uh, central location that they vibrate around. And so what happens is as something heats up, the molecules are essentially moving faster. There's a faster speed. Uh, you asked this question about water. In the case of a liquid, um, what makes a liquid liquid is that those atoms are not restricted to uh, vibrating about a particular fixed location in space or fixed location within the material. Um, instead, they can diffuse around, they can move around and that local, they could do vibrations, but then the local position that they're vibrating around is changing in time and they're drifting and moving about um, throughout the material. So in the case of liquid water, um, what's happening is, again, the vibrations are, uh, the speed of the vibrations or the velocities are increasing as you heat it up, um, but the atoms are able to move around and diffuse around in addition to vibrating at the same time. So I have a question about solids. So if something's in a, in a matrix that can vibrate, at some point, wouldn't it have an average velocity of zero? It seems like it would go to right. one side and stretch the matrix that it's in and then go to like a zero velocity per second and then come back and pass through a maximum. And, That's you know, it's exactly correct. Yes. So the, so the so, average velocity in terms of the vector, in terms of what direction it points is zero because they, they vibrate around a central location. And if you measure it relative to that, it's zero. Um, but the speed, but what, what the kinetic energy is, is the is one half times mass times velocity squared. The square of the velocity is not zero. So the square of the velocity will always be positive. And so the average of the square will be some positive number. But if you heat up a solid versus a liquid or a gas, I would think you'd have different heating characteristics, different curves, different ways that it, it changes temperature. Um, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that the there's a key property of a material called its thermal conductivity. Um, that is the measure of how well a material can conduct heat, can, can move heat through it. Um, more specifically, to, to get a little bit more technical, what the thermal conductivity is, is it's, it's the proportionality constant between the rate at which heat is flowing through or energy is flowing through a material as it's conducting heat. Um, and the corresponding temperature gradient in the material, meaning how steeply or how quickly the temperature is changing from one location to another. So the thermal conductivity is the, you know, probably the most important key property that would affect what you're saying, which is the temperature profile or how the temperature evolves in a material. But there's a second aspect to it as well. Specifically, if you're talking about a fluid, fluids can move around. And so you know, even though you have, let's say, water in a, in a pot, the water um, in its bulk sense, it can be stationary inside the pot. It's not moving. It's not going to come out of the pot. But internally, if you were to image it, if you put like food coloring in it and you start heating it, you'll see the food color coloring start to stir itself. It'll actually, you'll see internally the water is actually moving. And those are what we call convection currents or natural convection currents. They're driven by buoyancy within the water. Um, so, 
in short, I would say solids, um, you can have a characteristic curve or a characteristic response to a thermal perturbation or a thermal uh, heating event in some respect. And it's dictated by its material properties, its thermal conductivity, its density, its heat capacity. There's the several uh, thermal properties that dictate how it responds, but there, you can non-dimensionalize the, the problem such that all responses collapse onto one particular solution to the problem. And a similar thing can happen for fluids, which include both liquids and gases, uh, which now accounts for two aspects, which is uh, the thermal conduction, but also the potential for the fluid to move at the same time. And so um, this is these things we're talking about are, you know, the main undertakings in the, the courses that I teach, um, where we talk about these things and students learn how to model them. Yeah, if, if you would, if you wouldn't mind, one more question about it. Um, sure. So if I just have two atoms, one has a certain kinetic energy, another one has another, and how does energy transfer or heating occur between them? Is it only by collision? Are there other ways that uh, heat is um, transferred? Excellent question. Excellent question. So um, it is not only by collision. Um, so, for example, in a solid, you could argue that the atoms never really, quote unquote, collide per se. Um, they are spaced out in a way that they are uh, sitting in a energetic well or a potential well where each one is in, a, in effect trapped in a local region of space. And that's that's why they vibrate around one central location. And it's because they'd like to escape and go somewhere else, except the atoms around them push and pull on them, keeping them trapped in a particular cage. And, that, and then all the atoms feel that, that type of cage. And where these forces come from is that each atom is comprised of uh, protons, electrons, and neutrons. Protons and electrons specifically have, have charge. And so charged particles exert forces, Coulombic forces on each other. And so the substituent particles that are inside of an atom are what end up exerting forces on neighboring atoms. These effects or these forces are somewhat screened by the surrounding electrons and other particles and atoms that exist. Uh, but in the end, atoms exert forces on each other. And my group in particular spends a lot of effort trying to actually model these kinds of interactions and, and develop models to describe these kinds of forces. Because uh, these forces dictate the dynamics of how the atoms move and that ultimately dictates the heat transfer. So that's one of the main ways that heat is transferred is through these pulling and pushing forces between atoms. Uh, but the energy can also be transferred from one location to another uh, via electrons. So an electron can, for example, be excited um, to a, a higher state, move through the material, uh, interact with the surrounding atoms in a different location, and so to speak, deposit the energy, energy that it was energized with from another location. Um, and similarly, another thing that can happen is photons within a material can also move energy. So you can have um, electromagnetic waves that carry energy from a region of the material where the atoms are have higher speeds to another region where they have lower speed. So all three of those are uh, potential um, mechanisms at the atomic level for how energy can move. So I guess if you allow or restrict or try to stick to one mode of heating, you could probably get very different effects. Uh, yeah, so, so what generally happens is the extent to which any of those three mechanisms are at play um, depends on the type of material and also the, the temperature of the material. So the first one I mentioned where the atoms are interacting, that is always at play. 
in all materials. It's always there. That's there, you know, as you approach absolute zero, it's, it's the one that never goes away. Um, the electrons are generally most significant for metals where they uh, have lots of electrons that can move around freely. That's where that effect is most significant. Um, or if you have another material that maybe isn't a, a metal at, at moderate temperatures, but if you heat it up really hot, it starts to become electrically conducting, then the electrons can become significant. And similarly for photons, they are often um, negligible at, at lower temperatures, moderate temperatures. But if you get to extremely high temperatures, which is something that we deal with in my research group, um, you get well above 1000 C or so. And um, the photon co component of these things of, of heat transfer becomes very non-negligible because radiation, thermal radiation, which is essentially the emitting and absorption and, and transfer of photons uh, via thermal energy. Um, that the emission of photons or the, the rate of emission of photons scales with temperature to the fourth power. So it's very fast increase in, in the amount of photons that are coming out uh, as you heat up a material. Oh, so that could become the predominant method of heat transfer in higher yeah, temperature systems. Exactly, yeah. When you get really hot, the photons dominate. Oh, okay. So the, you, you mentioned, I hope I get this right. You said um, you have a way of, uh, I guess, of accomplishing heating or cooling uh, or at least storing heat instead of storing something else. Uh, could you re recap what you meant and talk about yeah. that part of your research? Yeah, there's a uh, technology that we're developing. It's been affectionately, affectionately called uh, Sun in a Box. Um, a colleague of mine called it that because we are working on storing energy at extremely high temperatures, higher than you know any other application I'm aware of uh, that's, that's commercially available. Um, so what we're doing here is taking in electricity that could be excess electricity on the grid from really any source. It could be fossil, it could be um, nuclear, uh, renewable. Um, in our case, we're most interested in storing, of course, renewable energy and um, take that energy in in the form of electricity and store it as heat. So you do that by using the electricity to run resistive heaters like dual heating and in doing that dual heating, you now are converting electricity to heat, store that heat in a medium, like a very cheap material, such as um, liquid silicon or iron or, um, or even carbon um, or coal or something like that, that is very cheap, something that's uh, very, very inexpensive. And you store the energy in that kinetic energy of the atoms. And those atoms are moving really fast and you use that energy to heat them up. So you take them from one state of kinetic energy to a higher state, and that's where the energy is now stored. Um, you generally store this energy in a system that is extremely large. So you, know, you need the size of the storage tanks to be order 10 meters in diameter, order 10 meters tall. So there's like typically tens of thousands of tons of material inside that's hot. And um, the typical way to do this is with what's called two tank thermal storage where you have a quote unquote cold tank and another tank that's quote unquote hot tank. In this case, in this technology, we're interested in storing the energy um, in liquid silicon. So you take colder liquid silicon. Here I'm using the term colder, but it's actually cold here is extremely hot to begin with. So the cold silicon is at 1900 degrees C, which is already glowing white hot. Oh. You take, you take uh, electricity and heat that silicon up to 2400 degrees C, so even hotter more glowing white hot. And because the tanks are large, 
that silicon would take an extremely long amount of time to cool down, like on the order of months. So you use a very large size tank in order to um, reduce the amount of heat leakage you get to the environment. The whole tank's insulated, so you try to prevent the heat from getting out, but it will inevitably get out gradually, but you slow the time scale so that you'd lose very little over the course of the day where you would cycle this battery. And the, and the quality of the heat is, is high enough that it can be used for a lot of applications? Well, yeah, well, we want to convert it back to electricity and put it back on the grid later when, when, it's, when the grid demands it. And so in essence, this system behaves just like a battery. You put in electricity and electricity comes back out later. It's just that we're storing it intermediately as heat rather than electricity. And in doing so, oh. we're, we're able to drop the cost dramatically. Can you do this on a, on a small scale for electronic devices that normally would have, or maybe even a car that normally would have heat loss and create like a small cladded or insulated area on a car or a machine or you know somewhere in that electricity is being used and have a little battery that uh, can... They can give power back when needed. Yeah, I mean, uh, in short, the, the short answer is not really. You, you could do it. It's just extremely inefficient to do it when it's small. So the efficiency of the system scales um, strongly, at least when it's small. It's very strongly impacted by the size. Eventually, you make it big enough, and now this, and eventually the size doesn't really matter. Um, and what this comes down to is what we call the surface area to volume ratio. The rate at which the energy is able to leak out to the environment from the storage unit scales with the amount of surface area that's exposed to the environment, which is like the outer surface area of the battery, like whatever it's container in. On the other hand, the amount of energy that you're storing scales with the volume inside the container. And so if you take the ratio of those two things, the surface area to volume ratio, the ratio is much larger when an object is small. The amount of area you have to the amount of volume is a much larger number when it's small. And so as, as when things are small, the heat losses are very significant and they detract from your ability to store the energy. So you, you know, case in point, and maybe I'll give you a simple, easy example. Imagine the amount of surface area and volume associated with a cup of coffee. So if you put a cup of coffee on your desk, um, the time it will take to cool down is, you know, it'll be, it'll be much cooler, noticeably cooler over the course of 30 minutes to an hour. Um, however, if that cup of coffee was much larger, let's say the exact same aspect ratio, it's still a cup, it looks just like a cup, but now imagine you've made it so large that there's 10 gallons of coffee inside. The amount, of time it would, the amount of time it would take that coffee to cool down would probably be more like 10 hours, right? So the amount of time it takes something to cool down is affected by this surface area to volume ratio. So the idea in this technology which it's a well-established idea because there's another technology that uses this same principle commercially and it works quite well, which is called a concentrated solar power. The idea is that you make the system large, so large that the time it would take to cool down in any you know, significant way is much longer than one day. And therefore, when you store energy this way, if you charge the system in the morning, discharge it the next morning, the amount of energy you've lost from as compared to how much you had stored is a small fraction, less than like 1% of the total amount of energy. So it's a small- yeah, For, for solar applications like diurnal, that's perfect. Because you really only need maybe 12 hours at most of storage. Exactly, yeah. So there's two, two timescales to be aware of. There's how long the energy can sit unused and to what extent it degrades over time just sitting without being used. That's one timescale. That, for, in general, for thermal energy storage, 
when you make it nice and large is on the order of like a month or more. Um, when you, there's a separate issue, which is then how long you, how much energy you have stored and how long you can discharge your battery, which is a separate time, which could be targeted, like you said, for like 12 hours where you might charge up your battery and expect to discharge it for all um, 12 hours of nighttime. What, um, the insulation of the container that this liquid silicon goes into, you know, what if, um, so if, let's say I'm sitting inside the container looking around the, the surface, I'll see the interior surface, is it very smooth? Or is it, does it matter if that's like very, you know, wrinkled and has a lot of surface area exposing, you oh, know, I me, the silicon to the cladding? Can the insulation be good enough that, you know, could you create, let's say, a smaller geometry one where you have like a, it looks like a wire of, of silicon, but it's liquid, a channel like snakes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth within a volume. So there's a lot of, you know, liquid that can be put in there, let's say, but it has a lot of surface area, but it's exposed to the, the insulation and maybe the heat won't go out. I don't know. Um, so so it, what you would want to do in this case is, I think, the reverse of what you're saying. You actually want to minimize the amount of surface area. So the, 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 the amount of heat loss you get is proportional to the surface area. So if anything, you want to minimize the amount. Of, and um, the second thing is, what largely dictates the amount of heat leakage is then is the insulation on the outside. So even if you did have something like you said, where maybe the inside of the tank was very rough and you have some surface area enhancement because of the tank wall, it wouldn't matter much at all because the main thing blocking the heat from getting out is something behind that element, which would be the insulation. The insulation is where most of the temperature gradient will occur. Um, where the temperature decrease will happen. So in essence, the entire tank could be effectively isothermal. It could all be one temperature um, and it won't really make, make much difference. So I guess the, um, the quality or the, the qualities of the liquid are probably very important. Like, I guess ideally it would be a very viscous liquid that has low heat transfer in it. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the reasons we were interested. We've been interested in silicon. Um, Silicon, along with most liquid metals, has a low viscosity right after melting. Um, so most liquid metals have a viscosity similar to that of water. So they pour very easily just like water and they flow just like water. Um, silicon is, is similar to that. Um, the benefit though of liquid metals is that they have very, very high thermal conductivities as compared to essentially all other liquids. Their thermal conductivities can be 100 or 1,000 times larger than something like water. And because of that, the amount of heat transfer, the heat transfer rate you get when you pump them is extremely high. Um, so high that it essentially is usually not the limiting resistance or the limiting factor in transferring heat. So what kind of commercial applications is your system perfect for? Uh, so the main one we're targeting is, is energy storage, as I mentioned. Um, you know, our approach to doing energy storage here is again to store energy in a medium at a very high temperature, nominally from 1900 degrees C up to 2400 degrees C. And then uh, what I didn't mention is then you pump that liquid and you transfer heat to a heat engine to convert it back to electricity later. Here, what's I think a big departure for us as compared to other approaches previously is we actually use photovoltaics as the heat engine. So because the entire infrastructure is glowing white hot, um, we actually use specially designed photovoltaic panels to do the conversion of the light back to electricity. And these PV cells are very unique in the sense that they have mirrors on the back of them so that um, any 
uh, light that we do not convert, we try to send it right back to the infrastructure so it's reabsorbed and not wasted. This is where this term sun in a box came from, is the idea that you've effectively trapped your heat source inside of a box so the light is not able to get out and get wasted. If you ever, uh, if you ever burn yourself on one of these, you can say, son of a box. That's a good one. But no, no um, generally speaking, these things are so hot that um, you can't even really look at it directly. Um, you have to have the insulation around it to get it that hot in the first place. And um, these things are shrouded around as well with uh, an external containment system of a, like a steel box or steel container or vacuum chamber around it. Um, all these things, you know, the vacuum chamber, if you touch the outside of it, it feels like it's at room temperature. So the vacuum chamber doesn't heat. Oh, wow. Um, so the temperature decreases a lot as you go away from um, the central portion that's really extremely hot. So what kind of efficiencies can you get from this? And when you add it on to a system, how much more efficient does it make it? So our target is to get to about 50% efficiency, meaning for all the electricity you put in, you get about 50% of the electricity back when you discharge it. And so that's actually quite low compared to other technologies like batteries or pumped hydro. What is um, the selling point though, is that economically, when we write it down on paper, at least it appears that our technology would win on cost despite the low efficiency, because the cost of storing the energy is like a factor of um, 20 to 100 lower um, than batteries or pump or, or other technology, right? So we end up winning on cost because we do pay a penalty on efficiency or our efficiency is lower, um, but at the same time, our cost is much lower. It's a bigger, it's a bigger improvement on cost than efficiency and, and it outweighs in the end. Huh. Is there any difference in the, um, the quality of the heat that you get or the quality of the electricity that you get out of this versus, uh, you know, other power systems? Are there certain ones that it's more amenable to and ones that it's not useful for? Um, the quality of the electricity is essentially the same as anything else. The quality of the heat is dramatically different. So this is, you know, extremely high quality heat that we're using. Um, that's part of the reason we're going to such high temperatures in the first place is to try and maximize the exergy and minimize thermodynamically how much uh, entropy we put into the system. So for certain applications, if you need to boil something, you know, if you need to heat something up, would you need to convert this back to electricity? I mean, you know, a lot of uh, industrial systems are, you know, produce heat, let's say boil water, and that turns a turbine. Could you use this? Uh, without going back to electricity to accomplish the same thing in the, you know, in a plant? Um, you could, in theory. Um, my suspicion is that there are a number of other approaches one would use if the temperatures at which you're going to use the heat are much lower, then there's really no need to go as hot as we're going. You could use a variety of other media and do it a variety of other ways that would be um, easier to implement and possibly cheaper. Um, this approach we've designed is specifically focused on having electricity as the output, and that's that's why we go to such an extreme temperature. Okay. And the uh, the other application you spoke about uh, in terms of green energy, what what what's your research look like there? Uh, yeah, so that's a project that uh, we actually just got some support for recently, and uh, we're very excited about it. Um, to understand it, it's probably good to understand the state of the art. So the way um, the way hydrogen is made today is through a process called um, steam methane reforming, um, which often, often typically involves a second reaction called the water gas shift reaction. So what, how this works is 
the desire is to make hydrogen, H2. So what you start with is methane, which is CH4. So it's got four hydrogen uh, atoms on it and one carbon. And you normally react it with water. Water has got two hydrogens and one oxygen. And when water reacts with methane, it'll form carbon monoxide and all those hydrogens will come off and separately form hydrogen. So you'll get a bunch of hydrogen out and you'll form um, carbon monoxide. The water gas shift reaction is then the second reaction where you then take the carbon monoxide out and react it with more water to form carbon dioxide, which can now go out into the atmosphere, although it's, it's a pollutant and, and causes um, um, global warming. Um, but you can make CO2 and a little bit more hydrogen. So this process is really important because we primarily use hydrogen to make ammonia and ammonia to make fertilizer so that we can make food for almost 8 billion people on Earth. Um, so it's an absolutely vital part of human existence, um, this, this approach, this process. Problem is it makes, you know, it's responsible for about a percent or so of CO2 emissions globally. And so um, instead, our approach is to still take the same input of methane, um, but instead to do something different, which is since we've now developed this approach to flow liquid metals at extremely high temperatures, um, we instead take the methane and heat it up to a very high temperature, about 1400 degrees C, not as hot as the energy storage, but um, still glowing white hot. And um, around 1400 degrees C, methane will decompose on its own thermally. It will do what's called pyrolysis. It'll pyrolyze into solid carbon and gaseous hydrogen. So the hydrogen will come off on its own and leave behind solid carbon rather than making CO2. The reason oh. that really valuable is because solid carbon is much more valuable as a product than carbon dioxide is. Um, carbon dioxide, we're trying to find, we have an overabundance of it and we're trying to figure out how to get it concentrated and put it under the ground or sequester it or put it somewhere um, so that it doesn't cause global warming. But solid carbon doesn't, of course, go into the atmosphere and could presumably be used for something else. Our vision is to take the solid carbon we make in the reactor and turn it into a construction material so that you can actually make something that would displace cement, which cement is responsible for about 10% of global car, uh, CO2 emissions. So we'd like to essentially solve two problems with one technology um, and minimize, you know, cut CO2 emissions by up to about 11% if we can do both industries um, with this approach. The problem with doing it, it sounds, sounds simple and straightforward, but it's not. Um, if, you know, the simplest thing you could imagine doing is, okay, well, I'll just take a pipe, heat it up to 1400 degrees C and put and flow methane through it. So the methane will heat up to 1400 degrees C. When that happens, the reaction will take place. It will decompose. The problem is that solid carbon is just going to deposit on the walls of the tube. And so the solid carbon will build up very quickly and actually block the entire cross-section of the tube so you can't flow the methane through anymore. And so it'll plug itself. This is what we call the plugging problem. And so this is this problem's been around for a long time. And partly for this reason, this technology has never really taken off um, because of the plugging problem. Uh, so there's a group in Germany, uh, Thomas Wetzel's group, that has demonstrated an alternative approach that solves the plugging problem, which is really nice. Um, and the idea is to use an intermediate liquid as the means of delivering the heat to the gas. So instead of using a pipe wall, which is solid, to transfer energy to the methane gas, instead put a column, a large, let's say a vat or big chamber of liquid metal 
the liquid metal here of choice is liquid tin, which is mostly what's used in solder. Um, liquid tin is special in this regard because liquid tin, very surprisingly, has no chemical interaction with carbon or hydrogen. It's actually uh, inert with respect to carbon and hydrogen. So, so liquid tin can sit in this, you know, large container. You heat the liquid tin up to 1400 degrees C. And now what you do is blow methane bubbles up from the bottom. So as the bubbles rise, they will heat up to this 1400 degrees C. The reaction will carry out inside the bubble. And now when the bubble reaches the surface of the liquid tin, um, the hydrogen will continue rising and the carbon will float on top of the liquid tin. So you get a little carbon particle that'll sit on top of the tin. And so if you blow lots of bubbles, you'll build up a whole bed of carbon powder that floats on top of the liquid tin. And the beauty of that is then you can now use the liquid tin to flow and move the carbon out in a continuous manner and make a continuous reactor that continually purges and pulls out carbon as you bubble in methane. That's really cool. And what can you do with the, uh, the carbon? What are some of the applications? Uh, the biggest one, well, there is a, so the, the main type of carbon that um, reactors of this nature seem to make is called carbon black. And there is a carbon black market today. It's primarily used uh, in tires and, and inks to make black ink. Um, however, if you were to imagine that this process was successful, um, well, let me just say, you know, if one would first sell to the carbon black market and make as much money as you can, carbon black sells from probably anywhere from, I believe, about $500 a ton to $2,000 a ton, depending upon the quality and its characteristics. The, um, what we are interested in, though, is taking the carbon black and turning it into a construction material. Um, particularly if you think about imagining this process being extremely successful, if it was to actually displace the current approach for making hydrogen, if that were to work and you now meet global hydrogen demand with this process and look at how much carbon you're going to make, you would quickly overrun the carbon black market. So all carbon black in that market would be saturated and you'd have, you know, 10 times more carbon laying around that needs to go somewhere. This is why we've specifically focused on the, um, the construction market, looking to, to create a construction material that could rival cement. And in doing so, cement production would be a sufficiently large uptake for all this carbon. So the cement market is um, a factor of 10 larger than the amount of carbon we make. So it's big enough to, to take all the carbon. Oh, so you can mix in, uh, you know, powdered carbon into cement and, you know, alter its properties, but they still be desirable? No, no, actually the idea would be to make a completely new material that's mostly, almost entirely carbon. That is the, it replaces cement. Like you don't even use cement anymore to make buildings. You use this carbon, it's carbon-based building. Huh. Interesting. What kind of, um, has, has anyone made a beam of it or, uh, you know, a pad of it? And they what have kind actually. of properties does it have? They it must have be interesting. Actually. Yeah, yeah, they have actually. I have a collaborator um, that I'm trying to work with. He shared some some data with me and showed that he had actually made um, something that was 90, I believe 94% carbon. He added basically a binder, which is essentially like a glue to it. And uh, he was able to make something that was stronger than not just concrete, but steel reinforced concrete. And so he could turn carbon into something that was stronger than steel and re steel reinforced concrete. I guess it's like a dirty diamond in a way, in terms of its it material it properties, right? Honestly, the most surprising thing with it is he actually showed a video demonstrating that it's actually fire retardant. So he tried to set it on fire with a torch and it doesn't catch fire. It makes sense. Yeah. There's no, you know, oxygens or hydrogens or anything attached to it. Yeah. 
Well, there's the oxygen in the air, but the but it it doesn't really have enough surface area to really uh, catch on fire to get hot enough to catch on. That I thought was particularly interesting because that means it could be used for um, homes and very large building structures uh, as a cement replacement. Um, because my understanding is that one of the big criteria for using it in larger civil structures is it's got to be fire retardant. Does it off gas or like what other properties does it have? An interesting. If it if it was to I mean, it would oxidize. If you try to burn it, it will oxidize. It doesn't burn and catch fire, so you don't get a flame. Um, but um, it will gradually oxidize if you heat it up hot enough. When it oxidizes, it's just making CO2. That's weird. You could design a building, and if it got hot enough, the whole building just evaporates to nothing. In a sense, yeah. yeah, yeah. Weird. Huh. Well, very cool. Thank you. Um, so, Ashigun, uh, what's, what's the best way for people to learn more about the projects you're working on and, uh, you know, see what your lab's doing. How can they get in touch? Yeah, easiest way is to go to our website, which is um, ASE, first three letters of my name, ASE.MIT.EDU. Um, there's quite a bit of information and videos on the website to explain the things that we're working on. And I also have um, some activity on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, just started with Twitter as well. Um, easy to find me, just Google my name, Ashegun Henry, ASE. G-U-N, last name Henry, H-E-N-R-Y. That's great. Ashigun, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been really cool to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.